Well, yesterday I spent $40. It was really easy. All I had to do was go to the Foothill Bible Church website and click under the men's conference. It took me to the link, and I I read about the conference, and it looked pretty good to me. (laughs) I know two of the speakers that that are going to be there. Actually, I know all three of the speakers. <laughs> One better than I like, actually. No, anyway. And so I pressed registration, and it took me to the form, and I filled in the appropriate information and pressed buy now, and it immediately charged my American Express card. And I'm now registered for the men's conference. Guys, it really wasn't hard. So I want to encourage you not to miss this good opportunity to be here the 21st and 22nd of May and to participate not just with the men of Foothill Bible Church, but there'll be men from a number of different churches here in Southern California in which we share a like and precious faith. And so please take advantage of that opportunity to register for the men's retreat. And of course, the women's retreat, I just got a look from the front row that said, don't you dare miss also encouraging the women's retreat. So yes, If it came down to household budget, and it could be only one or the other, men be smart and send your wife to the women's retreats. (laughs) And then you come see me afterwards, and we'll figure out a way to get you to come to the men's retreat. So money shouldn't be something that would keep you from either of these events. So definitely take advantage of these opportunities. You know, when I come home from the office after it's been a long day, there is nothing more gratifying than to put on my slippers, my special slippers, and to sit in my chair. I have a a particular chair in my living room that has a little table next to it in which there's a gigantic stack of books that I am reading at one level or another, and I'm a person who doesn't read one book. I read many books all at the same time, and I just go back and forth from book to book. But in any case, there's a big stack of books there, and there's that chair, I have my slippers, and you know, there's just something comforting about returning back to familiar places and settling in to familiar haunts. And I feel that way about the book of Romans, so open up there to Romans chapter 12. We've been in the book of Romans longer than I've had my favorite chair, I think. But there is something exceedingly comfortable about returning back to this book. I certainly enjoyed our time in Isaiah 40 and in Philippians 2 in the the past two weeks, but I'm very happy to be back to Romans. Page 1136, if you're using a pew Bible, we're back in the 12th chapter of Romans. And we will be looking this morning at verse 16 of Romans chapter 12. And as we look at this verse, really the the theme that sticks out of this verse is humility. This verse is an exhortation to humility. And that is the tenth ingredient, just to refresh your thinking, is that we, as we are proceeding through Romans chapter 12 here, beginning in verse 9 through verse 21, we are talking about, I've called it Paul's recipe for love. We've said that The Apostle Paul, in light of the transforming gospel that he has detailed for us in in such 
minutiae in some cases, it seems. In chapters 1 through 11, he draws now a conclusion in chapter 12 and says, in light of this tremendous theology, how are we now to live? And he spells it out for us in chapter 12. And in particular, we're looking at verses 9 through 21. And as we've been looking at these verses, we kind of bound it all up together under a recipe. We said it's like cooking. And in order to have something come out properly, you need all the right ingredients and they need to be in the right proportion and balance. And so that's been our overarching theme is Paul's recipe for love. And the purpose of this is so that we might evaluate our own cooking with regard to love. That is, what does our love taste like? And if it doesn't taste like the Apostle's recipe, it's probably because we don't have the right ingredients. And so this has been a great opportunity by the grace of God to just evaluate ourselves in light of this apostolic teaching. And so we arrive this morning in verse 16. Let me just read that verse for you. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Paul says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. These three exhortations together form the topic of humility. They really speak to the issue of humility. And as we've said, this is the tenth ingredient on Paul's list of twelve, the, the ingredient of humility. The last couple of years, I've read two booklets. Really, they're, they don't qualify to be called books. They're not long enough. They're really booklets on the topic of humility that I found profitable in my own life. One of them is entitled Humility, True Greatness by a, a retired pastor, C.J. Mahaney. And I really recommend that book. I found it very, very helpful to read. And another one that is actually an excerpt of two chapters coming out of a longer book, but it's been published in the form of a booklet. And it's called From Pride to Humility by Stuart Scott. And so I want to just, as we begin the topic of humility this morning, just recommend those two booklets to you. If you've not read them, you're not aware of them, then I would recommend you, you put your hands on them. You can find them in our, book, in our bookstore and read them. They're very, very helpful. But at the same time as I endorse these booklets, I also want to issue a caution to us. And the caution I want to in, issue to us is, is that humility is like riding a bicycle. It's like, like riding a bicycle. And what I mean by that is that riding a, you can't learn to ride a bicycle by just reading about it. It is not an academic topic. You don't read a book about riding a bicycle and then, wow, now I can ride. It takes practice. It takes diligence, doesn't it? In order to learn a bicycle, to ride a bicycle, you have to practice over and over again and you fall. And you fall frequently and you have to get up, you have to get back on the bicycle and you have to try it all over again. And it comes through practice and it doesn't come without some skinned knees along the way. Humility is much like that. I commend these booklets to you. They've been profitable in my own life. I, I highly recommend them to you. But just reading about humility will not make you humble. If it were only that easy. Instead, we must skin our knees. We must 
attempt it and we must fail and then get back up and try it again and we try it over and over again. It is indeed a lifetime process. That's where my analogy breaks down, of course. You eventually do learn to ride the bicycle. Humility, you will grow in it, but you will never master it. It'll always be something for every single one of us. It'll be a constant struggle, a constant fight, a constant falling off the bicycle and having to get back on again. But it requires practice. It requires regular and diligent practice. This morning in this section before us, verse 16 of chapter 12, Paul gives us three exhortations towards humility. And it's interesting because each of these three exhortations is built around a Greek root word, a Greek root word. It's called phron, and it means think, think. And the three exhortations are built around this word, this root that means to think. And the reason that is, is because right thinking produces right behavior. It is as we are transformed, chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. And so it is as we think rightly with regard to humility that we will begin to behave rightly with regard to humility. That is the process. It begins in the mind with thinking and it plays itself out through the behavior of the hands. And so in this verse, Paul gives us these three exhortations to humility and he builds them all around a Greek root word that, stand, that means to think. So as we look at verse 16 together, and I've given you an outline. It's on the back of your worship folder. There are three real-world attitudes. It begins with an attitude. Three real-world attitudes that are essential. They're absolutely essential to cultivate true Christian love with regard to humility. Absolutely essential. The first attitude, real-world attitude, that Paul has for us here in verse 16 is that we must be agreeable. Very simple. Be agreeable. That's the kind of attitude that leads to humility. Be agreeable. Notice verse 16, the beginning part. Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. Now, we see the one another here, and that clues us in that Paul is back to speaking about relationships inside the body of Christ, inside the local church. You notice up in verse 10, you see the same expression, be devoted to one another. And so when Paul uses the one another expression, it's an expression about relationships inside the local church, in the body, among the believers, among us as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is addressing the relationship that you and I have with each other here inside this local body. But the interesting thing is that it just doesn't stay here. It doesn't remain internal. How we relate to one another spills out into the world outside the body here. The the attitudes that we express and that we cultivate and that we develop inside the fellowship with one another will be what characterize us when we proceed outside the fellowship and we interact with the unbelieving world in the community of Upland and beyond. And so it's both an inside and an outside look when Paul says we are to be agreeable. We're to be agreeable. Now our witness, our witness to the gospel, that is to the transforming power 
of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the indwelling Spirit of God, is put on display by how we react with people or interact with people to whom we are spiritually related. Folks, if I can just say it as as simply as possible, if we cannot get along with those with whom we are spiritually related, how in the world will we ever get along with people outside the local fellowship? It's as simple as that. It all begins here, and it begins with the way we see one another, the way we view one another, the way our attitudes are one to another. An agreeable disposition inside the church leads to an agreeable disposition outside the church. You know, humility, and I'm probably not telling you anything that you don't know, humility is not a virtue that can be turned on and off, depending on the situation. Well, certain situations, you know, I'm humble. I get to other situations... I don't want to be humble, and I'm not humble. Humility doesn't work like that. Humility becomes a characteristic that that defines our lives, and we either are humble or we are not humble. And so it's something to pursue internally, and it will have external benefits. Now, the New Testament contains a number of exhortations towards harmony inside the local church, specifically by believers being like-minded. I'll just, well, I'll take you to one of them. It's here in Romans. I don't want to get too lost in this, but Romans chapter 15, verse 5. You just turn to the right a couple of chapters and you'll find it. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Paul says there, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are other expressions of this like-mindedness. Paul speaks of it in in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. He speaks of it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 4, and verse 2. So this idea of being like-minded is an expression or a concept that Paul uses in a number of his letters as he addresses the local church. But the interesting thing here in chapter 12, go ahead and turn back there, Romans chapter 12, verse 16, that sets this one apart from all the others is a little grammatical marker that Paul includes here. It's a preposition that he uses. And that preposition does not occur in any of the other expressions about being like-minded. Here it is in chapter 12, verse 16. Be of the same mind. The preposition is toward one another. Do you see it? Be of the same mind toward one another. And it's, it's instructive, I believe, that Paul doesn't say we are to be of the same mind among one another, or to be like-minded among one another. It is to be like-minded toward one another, toward one another. And that is, I believe, an important distinction that we need to just speak on a little bit. What this means is that Paul is not requiring, listen to me, Paul is not requiring that each of us think in exactly the same way about every issue. He is not requiring that every single person who is a member of Foothill Bible Church has to think the exact same way about every single issue in life. That is not what he is saying. What he is saying is that in light of our renewed mind by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has saved us and is transforming us, in light of that 
gospel that we are to think in a like-minded way toward one another. That is, that we are to be pursuing unity. It is a pursuit of unity. He is calling on us to have a common mindset with regard to our position here in the local body. That's the issue. It is the position that we occupy in the local body. Me towards you and you towards me and you towards each other. To be of the same mind with regard to that. That is to to remember and to recognize that we are sinners. Is that right? Anyone here not a sinner, by the way? Good. So we're all on the same playing field. We are all sinners. We are all saved by grace. Isn't that true? It is by grace and not by the works of the law. There is nothing that we can do that causes God to save us. God saves us from his mercy and his grace. We are sinners. We will always be sinners saved by grace. And we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are being made like Jesus Christ through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit who uses his word when we take it in in massive quantities to transform us and make us like Jesus Christ. Another secret to share with you. Are you ready? This is a morning of secrets. None of us have arrived. That's my secret. None of us have arrived. None of us have reached the place where we are completely conformed to the, to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? There is none of us who can say, I've made it. I've made it. Humility, in this case, is no longer an issue for me. Hum- humility? Humble? Oh, I solved that a long time ago. <laughs> none of us can make that statement. Isn't that true? None of us have arrived. Therefore, humility must rule in our hearts. That's the whole point of this. Back to the verse again. Be of the same mind toward one another. Recognize our position in the body here. Sinners saved by grace. Being steadily conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so the point of it is, is is when everyone recognizes that, then we will cut each other slack. And we will begin to act with humility one towards another. Maybe if I can reduce this all down for you to a very simple sentence. We are to think and act in a way that produces unity, not uniformity in this local assembly. We are to act and we are to think in a way that produces unity, but not uniformity. Not uniformity. Maybe I can illustrate this for you by reflecting on United States Marine Corps boot camp. How's that? United States Marine Corps boot camp is designed, among other things, to wipe out the individuality of every single incoming recruit. Every single one. Before they can be turned into Marines, the individuality must be driven out of them. It must be driven out of them. That is, they are after uniformity. Uniformity. And so they designed the whole boot camp to accomplish this. They are very clever about this. They designed it in such a way that all the recruits arrive in the middle of the night, sleep-deprived, and absolutely full of fear. 
And when they get there, the first person who greets them is not their mama, but it is a guy screaming in their face. And that screaming does not let up. And so they run from here, they run from there. The first thing they do is they sit them down and they remove all external marks of their individuality, beginning with their hair. It all comes off. All of their clothes are stripped and taken away from them, and they are handed identical items of clothing from their socks to their glasses. Every single thing is removed in order to produce this uniformity. And for the next 13 weeks, they are told when to eat, what to eat, where to go, when to sleep, how to bathe, how to march, on and on and on. Every aspect of their lives is regulated until coming out the other end of the 13 weeks. No longer do we have an individual, we have a robot. I mean, a United States Marine. <laughs> we have a United States Marine. They know what they're doing and they're good at it. <laughs> but praise the Lord, the church is not the Marine Corps. <laughs> Amen? The church is not the Marine Corps. We are one in the Spirit, to be sure. But there is still our individuality. There is still our individuality. And this is a great thing. This is not something to be feared. This is not something to be avoided. This is not something to be squashed. This is something to celebrate. That we who are so different from one another are made one in the body of Christ and only Jesus Christ could accomplish such an amazing miracle as to bring together a group this large of people drawn from this diverse a background and to cause us to be able to love one another that is a spiritual miracle that occurs you know we have all kinds of differences among us don't we we have different tastes in food We have different tastes in clothing. We have different tastes in entertainment. We have divergent convictions that run the range from education to economics, from parenting to politics, all over the place. In every nuance in between, there are differences here within the body, and that's good. That's good. We should celebrate that reality that we who are so diverse, we who would not naturally come together and not naturally be friends with one another, who would not naturally look forward to spending time with other people, come together with an anticipation in our heart because God has changed us. Because God has changed us. It's incredible. We not only tolerate our differences But, beloved, we can celebrate them. We can celebrate the differences that we have one with another. And there's no need to obliterate them. We do not need to obliterate them to get along. And that, by the way, should make us the easiest people to get along with in the whole world. We should be the easiest people to get along with by learning to consent and submit to one another... To, to reduce our preferences and elevate yours, that is, for mine to decline and for yours to increase, to be agreeable in that sense will make us agreeable people outside the church as well. You know, there are few worse testimonials to the gospel of Jesus Christ than disagreeable Christians. People on the outside 
who are difficult to get along with, that are hard to deal with, and that at the same time profess that Jesus Christ has saved them from their sin and he has transformed them. And yet, when they stand in line at the grocery store or they stand in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles or they're here or they're there, they're the most disagreeable sorts. Brothers and sisters, these things should not be. I just say it that simply. These things should not be. They are a contradiction to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So it is essential, it is essential that we be agreeable in attitude. Agreeable in attitude. Secondly, that we be approachable. We are to be agreeable and we are to be approachable. Look again at Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. You know, the greatest threat to our spiritual unity is pride. Isn't that true? Pride just is the exact opposite. It it chips away at the foundations of, of unity. And so Paul is warning the church here in the first century, and by extension, he is warning us to look out for the danger of snobbery. To look out for the danger of snobbery. What is a snob? What's a snob? A snob is a person who is concerned with questions with regard to wealth or social status or family connections. People who are, who are concerned with these kinds of issues are a snob. And Paul says there is no room for snobs in the church. About 19 years ago that we first moved to California, we had moved here from Dallas, Texas, and we moved into this wonderful community of Upland. We purchased a home in Upland, and and as we were beginning to get into the community, beginning to meet people in the community, we would be introduced to certain people, and they would always have a question for us. They would say, where do you live? And that sounded like a friendly question to me. And so we would give them the answer. We live on, on Francis Avenue, just east of Euclid. And they would say, what cross street? What cross street? And we would give them an answer and then they would say, oh. Oh. And Carol and I were mystified at first as to what, what did that mean? But then it began to catch on. Oh, I get it. It depends how high up the mountain I live. That determines my acceptability in this fine community. Yeah. Hmm. What's your cross street? Or maybe what's your elevation? Right? Maybe we should just ask that. What's your elevation? Fascinating. You know, where I grew up, bottom land was the valuable land. That's the one that can farm and produce crops. Not the side of a mountain that falls down in the rain. But only Southern California, right? Only Southern California. (laughs) There's no place for snobbery, beloved, in the church of Jesus Christ. There's just no room for it. It absolutely runs counter to the New Testament ethic of a one people in Christ. Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 11, 
verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus associated with the lowly. He associated with the lowly. And you know, that's a really good thing. It is a really good thing that he and his followers associated with the lowly. Because if it wasn't for that, most of us, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1141. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1141. Listen to what Paul writes to the proud church at Corinth. This was the church that was formed in a seaport city that was exceedingly wealthy. It was the narrow point in which east-west and west-east shipping traffic moved from Rome and Egypt. It had to pass through this narrow little isthmus where Corinth was located with a particularly nice harbor. And so as people moved back and forth across through Corinth, Corinth was collecting tribute and taxes in both directions. This city was wealthy. And Paul writes to them here in verse 1 to the church at Corinth, beginning in verse 26, He says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Paul writes to this proud church at Corinth and says, God has chosen people who are of no stature in the world to save in order that he might flip the wisdom of the world upon its head. Well, beloved, that's you and and I. That's you and I. We're a no-count people. We really don't bring anything to the party except the sin that needs to be forgiven. We are, we are the lowly of society. We are the lowly of society. And so when we think of ourselves in a different way, we're just puffing ourselves up. We're just puffing ourselves up. I can't help but think of James chapter 1. Another place, page 1207. James chapter 1. Actually, chapter 2. Chapter 1 would be good, but it's not correct. Chapter 2 is better. James chapter 2 and verse 1. James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes... And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and, and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom 
which He promised to those who love Him? Answer, yes. Yes, indeed, He has. Beloved, we need to be approachable as believers. We need to be approachable. The antidote to snobbery Paul gives us here back in in Romans chapter 12, it's, it's to freely associate with lowly people. Do you see it? Don't be haughty in your own mind, but associate with the lowly. Christian love doesn't focus on worldly status or achievements. We don't look at each other and evaluate each other in terms of, well, where do you stand in the pecking order? By the way, what's the cross street for your house? That's not the kind of question that as a Christian we we would ask each other. We're not concerned about those kinds of things. We don't judge people or not to be judging people based on externals, their clothing, the cars they drive. These are these are not the ways that we are to to evaluate people. This is a worldly way of thinking. Instead, what we do is we look at people and we see them as sinners made in the image of God and desperately in need of redemption, just like us. Just like us. There's no difference. There is no difference. A man with a large bank account and a man with a small bank account are both have the same problem. They are alienated from their creator. They are under the wrath of God and they desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ to rescue them from their sin. So associate freely, Paul says, with the lowly, with the lowly, with the humble. Now, by the way, the danger here of being unapproachable is is particularly acute, I believe, for, for Christian leaders. Christian leaders who foolishly read their own press clippings. We live in a celebrity culture. Isn't that true? If someone is successful at one thing, all of a sudden we now elevate them to be a spokesman for all other issues. And I've never figured out how the ability to dunk a basketball makes one qualified to opine on economics. But in any case, or the fact that you can play the guitar, that makes you an authority on Christian worship. But that's the world in which we live. And we have done the same thing to preachers. The Internet is a wonderful thing, and it can be used for the glory of God. But the Internet has also elevated local pastors to the status of celebrity. Celebrity pastors. I meet people all the time who they don't really know what the Bible says, but they know what pastor so-and-so said the Bible says. And that's their source of authority. It's it's like the Jews and their rabbis back in the first century. Rabbi so-and-so said this. Rabbi so-and-so said that. Who cares what rabbi said? What does the Bible say? But we have elevated people to this level. And beloved, it is dangerous. It is dangerous to the church and it is dangerous to their own soul. They are men. They are sinners. They are saved by grace. As my mother used to tell me when I was a boy, they put their pants on just like everybody else, one leg at a time. She always had a nice way of leveling the playing field. (laughs) There is a great danger in being unapproachable as a Christian leader. That is that that you've arrived at some celebrity status, nobody can come to you anymore. They can't talk to you. They've got to go through your intermediary. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 27. It says, It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it good to search out one's own glory. Because personal glory is like honey. A little is okay, 
But it's really easy to develop a taste for it. Really easy. And then you begin to read your own press clippings and you begin to believe that somehow you are above everyone else. Let me ask you a question. Are you approachable? Are you approachable? Are you an approachable person? Are you one that different people in the body here can come right up to and, and feel comfortable approaching you and asking you a question or, or starting a conversation with you? Or do they need a special introduction? Do you make an effort to get to know other people and to interact with them? Or are we trapped in our own little circles, our own little cliques, if I might use that word, and if you're on the inside, you can talk to me. If you're on the outside, sorry. Just room for us and no more. Anyone outside my natural circle of friends, sorry. Beloved, these things should not be. If this is what characterizes us, these things should not be. Great opportunity here to put in a plug for our home Bible studies, and, and so let me do that. The home Bible studies are called oikos group. Oikos, Greek word, means house. The idea is that these home studies are opportunities to get to know people who you might not normally associate with and begin to build relationships in the body, to begin to become approachable. Approachable. We're to be agreeable, Paul says. We're to be approachable, Paul says. Finally, we're to be accountable. We're to be accountable. This is the third attitude, to be accountable. Look at the end of verse 16. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be wise in your own estimation. The person being spoken of here is a person who is characterized by thinking, a thinking person. That's the root. It's translated for us wise. And the idea is that a thinking person is a wise person. One who uses the faculties that God has given them will be a wise person. So it's a commendable quality to be wise. But that commendable characteristic or quality can be rendered void when the standard by which we judge our own thinking is ourselves. Look at that verse again. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In your own estimation. When the standard that we measure our thinking by is ourselves, we're in trouble. We are in trouble. Paul is instructing the church there and this church to avoid self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. By which... Our own judgment becomes so highly regarded that we, we have no room for the wisdom that comes from any other source. The only person's counsel I'm interested in listening to is my own. Because I always agree. Paul says it's a foolish thing to do. It's a foolish thing to do. The Proverbs are loaded with admonitions against keeping counsel with yourself. Absolutely loaded with these kinds of admonitions. Forsaking the input of others, seeking your own wisdom in a matter. The Proverbs says, this is the path of a fool. Proverbs 3, chapter 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 
14, where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Ooh, that one's direct, huh? By the way, stupid is really meaning to be like a senseless, unfeeling beast. So if we wanted to put it in a vernacular, he who loves discipline loves knowledge. He who hates reproof is a cow and thinks like one. Okay? Thinks like an unreasoning beast. Chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. That you may be wise the rest of your days. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Wow. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy remedy. Basically what he's saying is that the refusal to accept correction will eventually catch up to you and it will break you. It will break you. We all need someone to speak truth into our lives. Every single one of us need at least one person who will look us in the eye and say, you're wrong. You are wrong. What you are thinking is wrong. The behavior that you're contemplating is wrong. The attitude that you presently have is wrong. The words that you just spoke were wrong. Every one of us needs somebody who's willing to do that. But the truth of the matter is, few of us have anybody like that. Isn't that true? Few of us have somebody that loves us enough to look us right in the eyeball Right? And say, you're wrong. You're wrong on this. We desperately need it. Beloved, we need to be accountable. We need to be accountable to someone besides ourselves. How do you become such a person? Well, there's one way that some people do it. They put together a small group of people if it's guys, it's a small group of guys. Ladies, it could be a small group of ladies. Just a, just a handful of people that you have a relationship with and that you trust. And you begin to meet together on some kind of a regular basis, some sort of a periodic basis. You're committed to each other, to pray for each other, to speak to one another, to, to encourage one another in your struggles, in your trials, in your temptations in life. And to ask each other some hard questions. I read about one group. This is the questions that they used. I thought these were good questions. These are good sample kinds of questions. To begin some kind of relationship with somebody who will hold us accountable. Let me read them to you. Number one, have you been, this is written to a man, but it could be, could be transformed for a woman. Have you been with a woman this week in such a way that was inappropriate or could have looked to others that you were using poor judgment? Have you been with a woman, gentlemen, this week in a way that was inappropriate or could have looked so to others as they looked on? 
We could flip that. Ladies, have you been with a guy this week that was an inappropriate meeting or could have looked as such to someone who passed by? Second question. Have you been completely above reproach in all of your financial dealings this week? Have you been completely above reproach in all of your financial dealings this week? Number three. Have you exposed yourself to any explicit material this week? This past week. Have you exposed yourself to any explicit, sexually explicit material? Have you? Fourth question. Have you spent time daily reading the Scriptures and praying? Have you spent time daily reading the Scriptures and praying? Number five. Have you shared the Gospel with anyone this week? Have you shared the gospel with anyone this week? Number six. Have you taken time off to be with your family this week? Have you taken any time off to be with your family this week? Now, this seems like it obviously applies to married couples, but, but you singles still living under your parents' roof, it applies to you too. You are so busy in, you, in pursuit of your single life that you have no time for your parents. You're dishonoring them. Have you taken time off this week, spent time with your family? And then finally, the seventh question. Have you just lied to me? Wow. Have you just lied to me? It's not fail-safe. It's not fail-safe, but it's an approach. It's a way to begin to help us, back to verse 16, not to be wise in our own estimation, not to keep counsel with ourselves, not to be an island under ourselves, but to let other people into our lives who will look us in the eye and say, you're wrong. You're wrong. Beloved, Paul's given us three real-world attitudes here. Three simple, real-world attitudes, and they're designed to cultivate authentic Christian love. Be agreeable, be approachable, and be accountable. Be agreeable, be approachable, and be accountable. If it were only so easy as listening to a sermon, huh? Wow. Wouldn't that be great? If just listening to a sermon would do it. I wrote the sermon, and it doesn't work for me. At least not one time through. We want to do these things. Isn't that true? Do you want to do these things? Do you want to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ, the likeness of humility? Do you want to? Do you? Are you awake? But we fall short. Isn't that true? We fall short. It's like riding that bicycle again. We get on it and, you know, it's real wobbly and like this, and boom, it falls over. Get back up. Get back up. Get back on the bicycle. 
Recount to yourself the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. That's right. That's what it was. I'm a sinner. Repent of that sin. Turn from that sin. Call out upon God. Thank Him for the, for the atonement of Jesus Christ, that He has taken the penalty of your sin, that you no longer have to face His wrath. And ask Him to help you to get back on the bicycle and to keep on riding. Simply trust in Jesus, if I could, can say it that way. It really is what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. We need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some of the things I've been saying to you here this morning are strange sounding in your ears. You're not exactly sure how it all fits together, maybe. Or maybe the lights have gone on for you. Maybe today's the day the lights went on. You said, I think I, I think I do get it now. And I know that I am a sinner. That part I've got figured out. And I know there's something about Jesus Christ and that he died to take the penalty for my sin. But I'm not really sure how that all fits together. And, and beyond that, I certainly don't understand how I begin to live a Christian life. I would love to help you. I would love to help you. We're going to be singing here in just a few minutes. Simply trust Jesus. When we finish singing, I'll be down here near the front. You don't have to make a big production out of this. You just make your way down. Let me, let me open the Bible with you and, and show you how you can know Christ Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You can be His child today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we dare not pray, keep us humble, for we are not humble. Indeed, we begin with a confession of our own wicked pride. Our Father, that it is always there, it is always lurking under the surface, and it seizes upon us. Yet, O oh Lord, we know that the humility is what Christ demonstrated. It is indeed what we have been predestined for. It is what your Holy Spirit is working out in our lives even now. Various trials and and tribulations that come to us, the difficulties at work and at home are uniquely designed by you to produce in us a humble spirit, a great dependence upon you. And so, O oh, oh Father, strengthen our faith. Enable us to embrace what you have for us as a good gift from your hand. Not the trial itself, but what the trial will accomplish as you use it in our lives. So, Lord, I pray for that one here this morning who is desperately in need of a Savior. Oh, may you draw them to yourself even now. Grant them no peace, no rest until they have come to know the Savior, Jesus our Lord. Amen.